Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44 as we continue in our study of the life of Joseph. Storytelling is a magnificent form of teaching. It's compelling, it's captivating, it's easy to remember. And through storytelling, you can shine a spotlight on something specific that you want to show or a point that you're trying to make. Now, I personally am not a good storyteller, uh, but my youngest daughter, Rosie, is a marvelous storyteller. And she tells these elaborate stories to her sister every night in bed, sometimes lasting hours, sometimes lasting days, where they're just building on each other to a suspenseful moment with careful things placed without to get laughter and to get, uh, you know, maybe even some frightening and different things along those lines. I'm lucky if I can come up with a paragraph or two. Uh, She goes on for days. But I'm learning the value of stories. Stories that build more and more Stories that have layers of carefully crafted moments leading to an ended and desired result. And I'm learning how the book of Genesis is filled with marvelous stories. But the unique thing is it's stories about history. It's real things that happened. Yet the author's intention in Genesis is not just to relay a historical record about the people of Israel. The truth is we're told from the word that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Moses has been led to compile a record of history with carefully crafted layers, carefully chosen moments in the life of the people of history to show us truths about who God is and how he interacts with creation and how man should interact and relate to God. You see, Genesis does teach us the history of the people of Israel, but more than that, it teaches us about Israel's God, our God. In John 5, 39, Jesus tells the Jews that the scriptures bear witness about him. And today's passage in Genesis is a beautiful representation of that truth. Now, as we have seen up to this point in the life of Joseph, God has providentially worked in and through Joseph to bring about his purposes and his plans. Have you noticed how the emphasis of Joseph's life is on God? God is the one we constantly see working. It all began with dreams in chapter 37, which at that point in time in the book of Genesis, as we're reading along, we're supposed to know are from God. Then the brother's jealousy leads them to sell him into slavery and we're left to wonder if the dreams will ever come true. In chapter 38, we see God again. This time, he's seen putting Judah's sons to death for their wickedness, but having mercy on Judah as he repents. In chapter 39, God is there again this time with Joseph in Potiphar's house and again in prison, causing everything in his hands to succeed. In 40 and 41, Joseph declares multiple times that interpretation of dreams belongs to God. 
And he tells Pharaoh twice that the famine will be brought about by God. In 41, Pharaoh also declares that the spirit of God is in Joseph. And then Joseph declares that God has made him forget his family, meaning he's given him peace, and that God has made him fruitful in his affliction. You see, God is the main character of the book of Genesis. And God was working to send Joseph to Egypt in order to provide for the people of Israel during a great famine that he would bring about. Yet in the last few chapters that we've been in in Genesis, we see that God is not just concerned with keeping Israel alive. He's concerned with the sons of Israel's hearts. In chapter 42, if you remember, when the brothers are asked to bring Benjamin back, they begin to see the guilt of their sin for selling Joseph. And then when they see the money has been put back in their sacks, what do they say? What is this that God has done? In chapter 43, we saw last week that Joseph refused to send Benjamin back with the brothers until the famine was so great that he must. So he devised a plan and he hopes that God will grant mercy to his sons. Then if you remember when the brothers fear for their lives before the steward because they've been invited into Joseph's home, what does the steward say? Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. Chapter 43 then ends with Joseph receiving a partial fulfillment of his dreams, seeing Benjamin and the brothers feasting together without jealousy. The mercy of God oozes from the story. You see, God is the one who's working through Joseph And in these last chapters, he's been steadily pursuing Joseph's brothers to bring about a particularly desired result. And that result is what we'll see next week in its reconciliation and restoration of the sons of Israel and Joseph, which I believe symbolizes the reconciliation and the restoration of God with his people. And as we'll see in today's passage, God is not done working on the brothers' hearts. And Moses shows us two things that take place before reconciliation and restoration can happen. So with that background, let's dive into our text and the first section of Genesis 44 in verses 1 through 12, where we will be examining Joseph's test. Notice how our story begins in verses 1 and 2. Then he, being Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So Joseph again gives the money back to the brothers. But this time he does something else. And he places his silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Notice next how the plot thickens in verses 3 through 12. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. 
They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? It is, is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to them, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And he, the steward, said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now we see, Joseph wasn't just preferring Benjamin again and giving him a cup of silver. He was setting a trap for the brothers. Now I think first we should take notice of the first question Joseph tells the steward to ask. Why have you repaid evil for good? And when we hear that question, we should be thinking about the good that has been shown to the brothers. However, when we look back at chapter 3, we see that the good we're meant to be thinking about is God's kindness and goodness. God was the one who put the money back in their sacks, the steward says. God is the one who provided for them. Next, I think we should notice the new detail we're given about this silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack. Did you see what Joseph tells the steward to say? He says, Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? This is really an interesting clarification. The Egyptians commonly used vessels of silver to practice what is called divination, which is where they would look in the silver to try to interpret an omen or a dream, and they thought that their gods would show them that by peering at the silver in this way. So the question we should ask is, why this cup? Why say this to the brothers? We have no reason to believe that Joseph actually practiced divination. In fact, in the last, in the couple of chapters ago, he told Pharaoh specifically that interpretations only belong to God. So I think we need to be careful not to suddenly assume that Joseph has veered off his path and is practicing divination. Many commentators think that he's simply using this to keep up his cover as an Egyptian. That's possible. Others think that Joseph uses this to incite fear that someone knows the truth. I think that's a possibility. Yet some commentators have suggested that it would have been common for the cup of divination or a silver cup to be known throughout the land as a cup of divination. And therefore, there may be another layer of evil being hinted at. Because what was stolen would have been an artifact of false gods. 
So not only would the brothers stealing this cup have been an evil against Joseph, it would have been an evil towards God who had been so good to them. Notice that there's no mention at all about the money or the food placed back in the sack. The focus is on this cup. Notice also in verses 6 and 7, the repetition of these words. Moses wants it to be clear that the steward said exactly what Joseph told him to say. So the possible evil being shown in here is a lack of faith in God, a desire to steal an artifact of another God and not trust God. And as we consider that Moses is compiling this story for the people of Israel, we can see how this would have spoken directly to their wandering hearts. Their hearts that had a propensity to trust in foreign gods and not the God of Israel. I'm probably about 80% sure that's part of the reason why Joseph uses this cup. We don't know exactly though, but we do know that there's intentionality behind it. Place this cup of divination in the youngest brother's sack and we see why when they're caught. The steward relays the message to the brothers and the brothers essentially say, impossible. Why in the world would we steal after returning money? It's a logical conclusion. Now they come short of saying that often used phrase, we are honest men, that we've heard them say. But the sentiment is the same. We return the money. We're honest men. Why would we steal again? So then they dig their grave in verse 9. Whoever is guilty will die, and the rest of us will be your servants. But did you notice the response of the steward? He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. He doesn't demand death or servanthood of all the men, only slavery of the one who is found guilty. So in verses 11 and 12, the brothers quickly pull down their sacks to prove themselves innocent. And the steward is so precise in how he searches the sacks from the eldest to the youngest to bring the climax to the tension where he gets to Benjamin's sack. The sack is opened up. The cup is there. The stage is set. Now, before we go on to the next section, I hope you're seeing the similarities of this to chapter 37. Once again, the favored son is going to be sold into slavery, and the brothers are there to do something about it. Only this time, he's presumably guilty of a serious crime. So you see what we're meant to ask? How will the brothers respond? What will they do? Will they leave Benjamin just like they left Joseph? And that brings us to our next section in verses 13 through 17, which are focusing on the brother's response. Notice first how all-inclusive verse 13 is. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. How do the brothers respond 
to Benjamin being found guilty, they tear their clothes and they mourn. You see, this is a big contrast to what happened in 37. In 37, they sell Joseph into slavery. Here, Benjamin's fate is the same, yet this situation is clearly vastly different. If you remember with Joseph, they wouldn't even listen to his distress as he cried out. Here, they mourn for their brother. Before the brothers sell Joseph back and go back and lie to their father, here, they go back with Joseph when they're given the chance to leave in innocence. Something has changed. Something has shifted in their hearts. Notice what happens next in verses 14 through 15. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And pause right there. There's a couple of fascinating things in this statement. First, Joseph again draws attention to divination. Don't you know that you'll be found out? Second, notice the question he asks. What deed is this that you have done? One commentator points out, this is the most elaborated form of a recurring refrain throughout Genesis. All the cases in Genesis appear to be calling to account rather than genuine requests for information. It's mentioned in Genesis 3.13, God to Eve in the garden. Again, in Genesis 4.10, God to Cain after he killed Abel. It's mentioned again in 12.18, Pharaoh to Abraham after lying about Sarai. 20.9, Abimelech to Abraham after he lied about Sarah. 26.10, Abimelech to Abraham the second time. 29.25, Jacob to Laban after he is deceived concerning his bride. And 31.26, Laban to Jacob after he stole away his daughters. Joseph's statement here is the last in this series of eight repetitions. What is this deed that you have done? The brothers are called into account for what they have done. And recognizing this refrain leads to a focus then on Judah's response in verse 16. Judah, as a representation of the brothers, stands forth and said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Do you see the statement? God has uncovered our guilt. The only brother that's possibly guilty in this situation is Benjamin. But Judah says, God has felt out our guilt. We have nothing to say. No pleas for innocence, no excuses, no blame of Benjamin. 
None of that recorded. Just a deep and a firm confession that we are guilty. We are guilty. But this confession is not that Joseph caught them. It's a confession of their guilt before God. You see, I think the change in their hearts is because God has called them to account for their sin of selling Joseph, and Judah recognizes it. And so he says, we have nothing to say. We are guilty. In 42.21, the brothers began to feel their guilt. And here, they appear to feel the full weight of it, the full weight of their sin. And Jodah, on their behalf, confesses openly their guilt before God. Notice, at this point in time, Judah does not know he's talking to Joseph. He stands before God guilty. David says in Psalm 51.4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you remember, David slept with another man's wife and then he killed him. But he says he sinned only against God. Let me ask you, do you see your sin in that way? Do you see it as an offense, as guilt before a holy God? Do you see how you have spurned his goodness and his mercy? You see, church, this is one of the best examples of true repentance before God and the confession that each one of our hearts must make when we approach God for forgiveness. We are guilty. There's a song called Rock of Ages that says, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, simply to the cross I cling. That's how we stand before God, guilty. And I love it because God is relentlessly pursuing the brothers with kindness and mercy before this, but he's not gonna leave them without a full awareness of their guilt before them. He's not gonna leave them to think they got away with it. He wants them to see that his kindness is meant to lead to repentance. So I think he uses Joseph's intentional and precise test to prick their hearts of their sin. Let me ask you, think on your life. Think on what surrounds you. Is God's kindness pursuing you for your repentance? Don't delay another day if it is. If you have seen God work in kindness towards you, Don't delay until you get to a confession like this before God. It's necessary. We are guilty, in need of grace and mercy. And the beautiful thing about this passage is the story's not done. There's more that God has for us. Interestingly enough, Joseph's test is not complete. Look at verse 17. Joseph's response, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. (laughs) I mean, the brothers did it. The brothers confessed their guilt. They offered themselves as slaves. 
But Joseph presses in. Why? Why press in? My best guess is that God is using Joseph to bring about Judah's response. And so we see in verses 18 through 34, a narrowing in on Judah's response. What will happen? They're given a chance to leave again. Look at verses 18 through 29. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a brother, a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. So Judah approaches this man from Egypt with respect. He acknowledges his authority. He recounts his request of them and Jacob's response and reluctance and devastation if Benjamin went with him. What stands out to me is how Judah focuses on Jacob's special love for Benjamin. Did you notice the repetition of that idea? In verse 20, his father loves him. Verse 22, if he should leave his father, his father would die. In verse 27, he shares of Jacob only saying he has two sons. In verses 28 through 29, Jacob's love for Joseph is recounted and compared to his love for Benjamin. And he says, if harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. You see, this kind of love and favoritism is part of what led the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery the first time. They were jealous of their father's love for Joseph. And as Judah is recounting this, I have to wonder how much jealousy could have been rising back up in his heart, the temptation towards jealousy. This is that son that my father loves again. He doesn't even love me. He doesn't care about my life. He only cares about Benjamin. He could have walked away. But what do we see him do? Look at verses 30 through 34. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, 
As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Think about what's happening for a moment and let it sink in. Do you remember that Jacob didn't accept Judah's offer for him to carry the blame? When Judah offered to carry the blame, Jacob's response at the end is, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Not, okay, you can take him, and I'll take your life if something happens to him. Judah had an out. He could have walked away. He could have told Jacob that Benjamin did something foolish and stole from the man. But instead... We see Judah go from the one who offered up his innocent brother to slavery to the one who sacrifices his life for his brother, who now appears guilty. What a change of heart. What a change of heart. I think Moses shows us two things from this moment in Judah's life. One, he has truly repented of his sin. You see, repentance is a complete change of heart and actions. It's a 180 full degree turn. The idea is that you're running this way away from God. And you repent and you turn and you run back towards God. It's not that you're running and you confess and then you say, oh, look at those pretty lights over there. It's you say they're not worth it. God is my desire. That's repentance. A full change, a complete change of heart. Because church, as we confess our guilt and as we trust in Jesus Christ, God changes us completely. He places his spirit within us. He gives us affections that we never had before. He gives us power to obey that we never had before. He shows us his glory in new and unique ways and we're left a new creation, changed completely. That's how powerful God's salvation is. And can I just say that this is an ongoing process? We're still battling sin, still fighting the fight of faith. Yes, there is a one-time moment of repentance and trust in Christ. That covers you forever. But any heart that's been changed by God continues to see the depths of sin that still exist in this wretched body, as Paul calls it. And we see our guilt before God. And we repent of it again and again and we turn back to God and we sing, forgive me, I want to delight in you. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over and over again. So through Judah, Moses shows us that repentance brings about full change. But the second thing I think this passage is meant to reveal to us is that Judah provides us with a glimpse into what Jesus Christ would do on behalf of his people on the cross of Calvary. Who is Jesus called? The Lion of Judah. Listen, 
many are quick to see Joseph as a type of Christ, and he may very well be. But there is no sweeter image of Jesus Christ in the book of Genesis than this one right here. Although there is a very striking difference between Judah and Christ. Pastor Lincoln Duncan puts this better than I could. He says, it is interesting, isn't it here? The guilty offers himself as a substitute for the innocents. Judah had been guilty of many, many sins. We haven't seen Benjamin commit any. But there would be another lion of the tribe of Judah who was innocent, but would offer himself as a substitute for his guilty brothers. And that substitute would be accepted, and he would live and die in their place that they might experience his glory. Oh, church. I would suggest to you this morning that the most glorious thing you can see from this passage of Genesis is Jesus Christ in your place at Calvary. He bore the guilt of our sin. He was spotless, righteous, son of God sacrificed himself for us. If you know very little bit about the Bible, know that this is what the Bible is pointing to. Jesus on the cross, the spotless, innocent, magnificently glorious Christ, dying in the place of guilty, undeserving sinners, taking the wrath deserved for their sin and washing them clean, bringing them to repentance and changing them forever and ever and ever and then showing us that what stands before us is an eternity basking in the glory of God forever. No more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation. Judah gives us a glimpse into what the Lion of Judah would do for his people. So I think this passage in Genesis is about repentance, and the price that was paid to reconcile us to God. And so the takeaway is simple. In order for reconciliation with God to take place, repentance must happen and trust in Christ's sacrifice must exist. God is in pursuit of his people's hearts and he calls them to repent and believe. And in his kindness, he will chase them down to bring them to that point. See the guilt of your sin before a holy God. Repent of it and turn from it, trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sins. If you haven't done this before this morning, do it now. Do it now. God has been so kind to you up into this moment in your life. The very breath you breathe comes from him. Repent and believe. Be reconciled to God. Be reunited to your creator. And if you have done this already in life, keep doing it. Ask God to expose sin. It's kindness. Ask God to change your heart. Turn from these shiny pretty lights over here 
to the sun over here. Turn from the twinkle lights to the spotlights. God's joy is so much better than anything this world has to offer. God's glory is so much better. See your sin and trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown through the blood of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the way that you pursue your people, the way you move, the way you change us. God, we ask for you to show us our sin, to shine a light on it, to expose it, exposing the darkness in our hearts, and to help us overcome it so we can have more joy in you, more fellowship with you, more delight in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if there are any in this room this morning that do not know you, that you would right now, in this moment, remove the scales from their eyes. Shine the light of the glory of Jesus Christ into their hearts. Make them new. God, give us the grace we need to live for you. Show us the magnificence of being reconciled to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.